Hi, I'm Michael Williams, Artistic Director of Sydney Writers' Festival. This recording and the festival itself take place on the unceded lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to ancestors and elders, past and present. We hope you enjoy this conversation from our 2021 podcast series. Uh, so welcome to our panel. Thanks for joining us here today. I'm going to try and maybe find a starting point for all of our books. Um, for you, Donna, I think the obvious thing is this concept of the spinster, uh, a triggering word for some people. It's right there on the cover of your book. How do you engage with that word? Uh, well, I didn't want to for a long time, I can tell you that much. Um, I began writing this book as a single woman. And uh, as I did the research into, um, oh, you know, there's a lot of research on whether or not you're happy if you get married or if you get single and or stay single or choose to be single. I mean, all these questions um, come up and, in, and are sort of thrown around in the discussion about being single or let's say not married. It's, I think actually, you know, not being married is what triggers people, the, not so much anymore, but there was certainly a time when if you weren't married, you really did need to explain yourself. And as a result, there was a lot of studies in America, a mountain of them, at least a mountain range, I think, of studies on whether or not you're happier if you're married or if you're single. And um, also uh, feminist research on whether or not a woman is uh, safe, uh, happy if she's married or not. And of course, we know that marriage is uh, very scary, let's just say, and uh, risky for women. So all of this was coming out and I'm doing all this research on it. And I'm realising that the more books I read on this subject of being single and the more research I do into this subject of being single, that my life is completely invisible because I just happen to never get married or couple. It's not that I didn't want to. It's just the opportunity didn't arrive. Um, there were certainly good men that I fell in love with, but they fell in love with someone else. And I could talk about that for hours. But <laughs> there were also, you know, men who were great to hang out with, um, but really not the kind of person who I would employ in the project of making a family. And so I ended up uh, not married. I, I grew up, I, I went through this during a time um, when the word spinster had been thrown away to the horizon. It was a terrible, uh, pernicious word um, and we mustn't have this word because it paints women in a difficult and, and terrible uh, way. And, uh, and so I was calling myself single until I realised actually I'm a spinster and I know other spinsters. We need to use this word. I, people say reclaim it. I don't think we need to reclaim it. I think we just need to use it destigmatize it, if you like. We don't need to claim it. We just need to say it exists. It's a, it's a life experience. We need to talk about it because more and more, increasingly, spinsters and bachelors are, go, um, are managing their way through our world, our Western world, um, which is founded on a dual income household. And that's just one of the problems. There are many others. I'm not going to talk about toilet paper. But that's <laughs> we there's buy a, less. <laughs> there's a line that just kind of sprang up at me 
Uh, I am spinster. I stand in grief and loneliness. The fractured paragraphs of a discontinued narrative. That's pretty strong stuff. And but you mentioned the word、uh, bachelor there, Stephanie.、Um, the, spinster is kind of loaded in a way that a word like bachelor or bachelorette or singleton, which is another word you discuss、mm-hmm. in your book, is not. Don't you think? Oh, most definitely, because. I think the general feeling was either bachelors were actually gay men who didn't、Ooh. want to come out and not the marrying kind in those times,、Ooh. but also it's the question of power and choice. The assumption is that the spinster is the spinster not by choice, whereas the bachelor may be a bachelor by choice. So we come back again to the gendered questions of power,、Ooh. and of course that could be completely untrue. In both directions,、mm. so I think I rather like、um, Donna's idea of reclaim. Or not, yeah, I know. It's so easy to say that. Of using, <laughs>、yeah. in the same way that people have taken to using crone about wise、yes. older women. Yes, you know,、yeah. older women were so disparaged for、mm. generations and generations,、mm. and maybe particularly when they hadn't had children. So. You know,、yes. dreadful words would be used about them, and we know that if, even from you know the Julia Gillard, yes,、uh, you、mm. know, appalling w- words that were thrust at her. And I think the other point that I would like to make is that neither bachelor nor spinster tells us anything about the quality of relationships that that person is、yeah. capable of having and is having. So the lazy assumption is that if somebody's Married or in a committed relationship, their needs, are, their emotional needs, are being met. We know that isn't true because relationships break down frequently. So they may be being met, they may not be being met. But people who are not in a, you know, obvious committed relationship could be having a number of different relationships of the most、um, rewarding and. And rich and evolving kind.、Mm. So I think that the stereotypes with all of those words really need to be exploded. As a journalist, Christine, would you, do you hesitate about using that word or not? The word spinster.、Mm. It's an interesting question, but I certainly, as a journalist, I think, I mean, journalism、um, trades in in stereotypes and tropes. Yeah, shorthand, if you want, if you want, will. So, if you're going to use the word spinster in in a newspaper story, it would be carrying all of those connotations that that Donna's talking about.、Um, but you're right. I mean, I think words can be taken back,、um, absolutely. And I mean, there's a whole language that we're only just beginning to create about about women, because the reality is that it's not been very long that、um, that at all in in human history that women have been able to tell their stories. From their own perspectives, whether it's as somebody who is is single or childless, or indeed the experience of being a mother, you know, because that's another thing that's been flattened as、uh, to be,、um, you know, almost two dimensional to serve a purpose. And women really need to be allowed to talk about the experience of, you know, of motherhood juggling work or motherhood and juggling the unpaid care of older. You know, parents and things like that,、um, in ways that aren't pejorative, and I don't think that that's been allowed much at all.、Uh, we're only starting to see that happen. So, you know, for example,、um, you know, one of the things that always gets a sort of a, 
a wince or a cringe when I talk about my book, when people say, well, why did you, what began, you, you know, what prompted this journey towards seeking out uh, silence or seeking to turn down the noise, was that I had had this enormous sort of career um, upwards trajectory. I mean, you know, in, in, the, in the outside minds of those, sorry, the outside world looking at my life, I was doing everything right. You know, I had suddenly had this successful corporate um, job that I'd moved out of journalism to take. I was living in Sydney in the, you know, leafy, leafy harbour, harbourside suburbs and so forth. But whenever I'd come, when I'd come home from work, um, carrying my two phones, because that's what happens when you're really important, you get two phones. Um, I'd come through the door and this, literally the sound of my children, who were then in upper primary, would make me wince. That's the part that's, you know, you're not allowed to say. The input of, of my partner and my children at that point, after I'd done a really long day, was almost physically painful. And I didn't even have the language or the, you know, the, I, nobody talks about how hard it is to continually do that emotional labour when you're also subjected to the inputs of, you know, a, a full-time job or all of the other things that we juggle. So I think that there are lots of um, experiences that we're only just gradually nudging forward to start talking about, which is why I think Donna's book is just so, um, you know, profoundly, profoundly, I mean, I mean, brave is an overused word, but it's a profoundly essential um, book to sort of, to just at least open up the conversation. And again, shameless plug for everybody else's book right now coming up. But it also says the, 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 the fact that these twin um, concepts of intimacy and solitude, you know, they, they're just, as I said to Stephanie just before we came on board, they, you know, universal and enduring things that we both struggle with, but we're also drawn to. Well, you've kind of given us the starting point for your book, which is the way I would describe it as juggling several balls while running on a treadmill, which, which I think mm. would sound quite familiar to a lot of women. If you could change anything, what, what needed to change for that to be a good situation for you, other than, you know, what you ended up going into? Well, yeah, I mean, I think actually, Anton, that, that's the point. I mean, I actually said to someone recently that the experience of turning down the noise, and by that I mean recognising, and it took me a while to recognise, you know, what the hell the noise was. I went through this um, period for a while where I actually walked around with an audio meter, a little app on my phone, and thought <laughs> it was just a decibel thing, and I'd sort of move into rooms and think... If I can find a really quiet place, it'll be fine. And then I realised that there was a lot of digital noise that we carry with us and the work noise, the constant expectation of work now. Um, and I realised, I said this to someone recently, that that experience of seeking to turn down the noise in that way, it's actually quite a radicalising experience because what it alerted me to is the how we are increasingly becoming these units in an economy rather than people in a community. And what happens when you're a unit in an economy is that your measured, your value is about being productive. Mm -hmm. 
And think about that. I mean, not just in what you do at work, if you're in paid work, but your product, the way we treat our children, which is that so often we feel that they should be lined up and doing, you know, violin lessons or tutoring or a sport and things like that. Why? Because the, just the act of being isn't enough anymore. Your value as a human being is somehow tied to what you're achieving, producing and so forth. So what would I change? Well, I changed, I made, we made very, very, as, and I talk about this in the book, I mean, we made very um, deliberate choices in the end to, for me to step back from, from a corporate job. Um, and it's easy to feel shame about that, to actually step back and say, you know what, everyone else thinks this is a fantastic thing. We moved from Sydney back to Brisbane. We had aging parents there. We and and um, and my father was, as I talk about in the book. I mean, it turns out he was dying. But um, all of those decisions were a part. We're a very deliberate process of recognizing that if you don't do this work of cutting out the extraneous stuff in your life, nobody else is going to do it for you, and the people will just, you know, people relationships just go by the wayside. Which actually leads us beautifully into Stephanie's starting point, which is the self. And, and maybe you could just help us understand this concept of the self, the way we engage with other people by engaging with ourselves in a world in which personal branding seems to be the main thing. And also we seem to be on show all the time. Yes. And, um, the noise that is most difficult for any of us is the noise that is inside our own heads, especially when that noise is demanding, critical, hostile, harsh, comparing us to others, and sometimes driving us to despair. That's the noise that hurts us most. The noise that's outside ourselves, we can take measures once we become conscious of it, as Christine has described so beautifully, we can take measures to create some kind of strategies or borders or respite from it. So, for example, um, if you're learning to meditate or just to sit in contemplation or just to sit and be, it's ideal if you can do it even in, you know, Times Square or the noisiest place you can think of. It's, of course, much, much easier to do that when you can recollect yourself, uh, calm yourself, be with yourself in a place that supports that. But for that sense of self to be really supported, it can't just depend on location. It has to depend on something that's more integral to who you are. And we grow up in a time which, you know, Christine and Donna both write about so well. We grow up in a time in which we're not only subject to other people's opinions of us constantly, and their judgments, which are relentlessly superficial. I mean, I, 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 I quote um, Ralph Waldo Emerson in my new uh, long forward in Intimacy and Solitude saying, 
character is much more important than intellect. And by that, um, Emerson meant character is our emotional and moral intelligence. In order to think positively about other people, or in order to embrace other people's reality with some sense not just of compassion, but also of insight, we have to have a sense of ourselves with a sense of compassion and insight. How do we get that? So it may be very comforting to tell you that I'd done quite a lot of work for you. It took me, <laughs> it took me three and a half years. And I wrote the first edition of Intimacy and Solitude when my own children were really small and when I had studied um, analytic psychotherapy and when I had realized, I think I was very struck by what Christine said. Before I began the work of Intimacy and Solitude, I wrote a, a, a fairly autobiographical novel called Running Backwards Over Sand, in which I discovered and wrote about how difficult it is to find a sense of yourself if what is reflected back to you in childhood and early adulthood is not so embracing. And I'd had lots of therapy around that. And during the years that I was running the women's press, I had in London and I had such a public role and it was exhilarating and stimulating and wonderful. And I would spend a lot of my weekends flat on my back in my bed, mm -hmm. exhausted and depressed. Mm -hmm. be because there was a chasm, I think, between how I presented myself and the, some of the needs that I actually had. And so one of the things that would happen would be that I would get up and give a rousing speech about some social justice issue and particularly about peace politics, which I'm still absolutely passionate about. And then instead of going home and saying, you did your bit, you did your best, I would rankle at the little bit that I thought could have done better and so on and so on. In other words, I was not treating myself well. And it took me years, three and a half years just to write that section, that can we find a way to get to know ourselves, this unique, precious, wild self that each of us has, that is also radically interconnected with every other being, can we get to know that self with some engagement, some interest, some compassion, some curiosity, and some gratitude so that I can truly see the self in you? Well, I've no doubt that there are many people in this audience who know only too well how influential your book has been in their lives. Uh, not the least of whom the other two panelists here both have made comments to me privately about how, you know, how much it has affected them. In fact, Donna was telling me a story about arriving in Melbourne and craving company and then getting invited to go on a trip hunting on the Yarra, which unfortunately didn't turn out. But Donna, what happened in that situation? Well, um, after I uh, got over the fact that this person thought it was quite fine for me to um, go punting on the river by myself, <laughs> I just, yeah, it was just a whole kind of language I didn't understand. But um, 
I decided to go to the forest and um, went up to Sassafras, and that was as a result of your work. Oh, wow. Yeah, and my entire... Um, as I was struggling to the point where that line that you read was that moment when I was really confronting in my life the fact that, um, well, let's just say life was going to be different for me. Uh, it was the, my relationship with the forest inspired by you, Stephanie Darrick. <laughs> and going up there, um, you know, I, I just so associate with your weekends, going home and just collapsing. Um, it was the forest that kept me alive. Um, and so, in a way, it was you. So, thank you. Oh, thank you, Donna. Oh. Thank you. Thank you very much. And, the, and, and I will just say in response to that, that one of the great things about writing a book is not just the conversations that you have. I mean, I tell many, many stories. And when I was revising for this edition, I was so moved again by the interviews that I'd done those years ago and the stories, the intimate, naked stories that people had told me. So, so there are those sorts of conversations. There's the conversations you're having with readers as you write, with, your own, with other writers through your reading as you write. But then there's the conversation that each of us as writers is having with you. We are all here as readers, primarily, even more than we are here together today as writers. We are, we are sharing the, the, the subtleties and the universalities and the uniquenesses of our human experiences through our reading. We are encouraging one another through our reading and through our writing, which is why I think it's quite important that we are selective about what we bring into our minds, how we feed our minds, because we're living in a time of such noise. We are living in a time of, uh, you know, barrage of opinion, many of which does not benefit us. So if we can be if we can be somewhat the gatekeeper for what we bring in, this will also help us in what we can give out because it's a constant cycle of receiving and giving. That's what our interdependence is. I know, it's like I, I spend much less time on social media now because I find it so upsetting that the shouting and the nastiness, it just goes... You know, it just gets out of control. But the line that you said but to me... But there's also a lot yeah. of beauty in social media. That is true. There is a lot of beauty. If we're selective and careful, there is a lot of beauty in how we can inform one another, uh, alert one another to events that are meaningful, mm. uh, send messages of con mm. con consoling or yeah. encouragement. Mm. So I think it's also how we use it. I, I certainly don't have a blanket view about social media. Yeah. For m in my life, it's been more benefit than, than harm, for sure. Yeah. Sure. Um, the line that Donna uh, said to me was, this book kept me sane because she was saying, my life was out of balance and it wasn't my fault. Yes. Which I think was quite a sort of yeah. sentient thing yeah. to say, yeah. which, Christine, I think that also kind of descri describes your situation in a way <laughs> as well. Uh, and you found your own way of communing with nature, didn't you? Your journey took you to this silent retreat in the Tasmanian bush. Ten days, if you don't know what it's about, it's ten days of no eye contact, no books, no writing material, 
obviously no electronic devices, not even an eye wink to your partner as you pass in the dining hall. It sounds quite strong and confronting. Uh, Christine, what were you looking for and what did you find in, on that trip? Yeah, so that's a, a form of meditation, a practice called Vipassana meditation, and it draws its um, origins from one of the most ancient um, Buddhist, uh, Buddhist texts, uh, the Satipatthana Sutta, but it's not, um, I mean, Buddhism isn't really a, um, a proselytizing type of religion. People think of it as a religion, but it's, it, it doesn't necessarily work that way. Um, so you can go and just learn the practice of, of meditation. And it really is in many ways, just an extended period of what you might do in a, in 30 minutes seated within silence on a meditation cushion, but it takes it to a more profound level. Um, I think what I was seeking was to build on a practice that I'd been slowly building up because one of the one of the things where I came to be interested in turning down the noise, as it were, was I it was it, I knew it was going to be a personal uh, experience or journey, but the journalist in me wanted to keep researching it, and I think that's kind of a there's a certain degree of if I'm researching and then it's okay, it's safe because I'm, I'm actually doing this professionally, not just personally. Um, but so slowly I had worked up to the 10 days. And that's a, the first thing I would say is you don't jump into a 10-day silent retreat. They, if they're being run properly, you won't be allowed to. Um, and I guess I'd done a couple of shorter experiences. I'd done hikes on my own to very, very quiet places. Um, I'd stayed in both Christian and Buddhist um, uh, uh, monast monasteries um, where, that were dedicated to science. But the 10-day the retreat in, in Tasmania was really just to see. It's, it was, it's curiosity, Anton, more than anything. I mean, I know people were horrified at the idea, but for me it was fueled by a, a, an understanding by that point that the only thing I was going to be meeting was myself. And it's a really interesting concept, isn't it? Because we live in an era of the selfie. We keep being told that it's the most self-interested, most narcissistic, you know, era that we, of human history. And yet, you know, people might be happy to take photos of themselves. And, but the idea of being alone with themselves is terrifying. What does that say? Why? Why are we terrified of being alone with ourselves? Um, really interesting research out of University of Harvard and Virginia. It was a joint study. Um, they, they took a bunch of um, men and women. And at the beginning, it was voluntary. So you're allowed to administer pain if people have volunteered. They gave each person an electric shock. Powerful enough that it was painful that enough for people to say, I'd pay not to have that again without it being dangerous. And then they took each of those people and they divided them up and you went into a room, bare room, no phone, no books, nothing. And you were told you would sit there on your own for 15 minutes. You could do anything, but you weren't allowed. There was no stimulation in that room. And three quarters of the men and about a quarter of the women administered a, a shock, another of those painful shocks that they mm -hmm. said they would pay not to have rather than to sit in that room for 15 minutes. Oh my gosh. 
Now, as an aside, I would say because these questions come up, why were the women? Why were there more women prepared to stay in that room than there were men? And I would say because those women were probably mothers, and they were like, <laughs> "Oh, thank God, a little quiet time for a sleep." <laughs> However, it says a more serious point, which is, you know, the Blaise Pascal quote. You know, most men's um, misery. Help me out here. Is in fact, is, it comes from their inability to sit quietly in a room, quietly in a room with their own thoughts. So that's what, that's what drove me to go for 10 days because I thought I, I wanted to find out what I would discover. Mm-hmm. I was safe. I was going to be fed. I was going to be, I mean, it's very, they're very basic um, facilities. But the only thing that was being asked of me was to not, you know, to not be talk. alone with my thoughts, mm-hmm. not to talk. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it definitely... I, you know, it, it, I, I, again, I'm not into telling people this is what you must do to change your life. I think we've got enough of that. But certainly by the time I built up to those 10 days of silence, it changed me fundamentally because it allowed me to see how much of what Stephanie was talking about, that what the Buddhists call the monkey mind, that negative self-talk. How much of it is just your brain going, oh, just what happens when you sit on a meditation stool? And this is why a lot of people think they're failing at meditation. It's the first thing that happens is your brain will go, well, I hate this. I'm bored. And then the thing your brain will do is start throwing things at you to see if it'll get you off the meditation stool to distract you. You've got to put the laundry on. You know, you're not very good at this anyway. You know, you're being selfish because you're taking time out for yourself, whatever it will do. But if you can sit with that, what you realise is this is just random stuff. And there's, a, there's an ability to step back. I think um, Tim Ferriss, who wrote The 4-Hour Workweek, but also does a wonderful podcast now um, and is a meditator, he describes it as being able, before he learnt it, he was like the washing in the washing machine that you can watch if you've got a front loader. You know, my, I have a cat who does that. Watch it. And he said all it did was teach him, that's your brain in there, your mind. All it did is move, give him the ability to move the six inches to the other side of that thing and realise, oh, there's my, there's my thoughts. But I don't have to be part of that. And that's the first step, I think, towards just a great freedom of... You are not your thoughts. And I do write yeah. a lot about that. <clears throat> I do write about the self, coming back to your question to me, that the self is more than your thoughts. Mm. The self is more than your body. Mm. The self is more than the emotion. The self, your self is more than your perception of the, whatever the latest drama is. You can have the capacity very easily, we could learn it this afternoon, to observe your thoughts and therefore have at least some mastery. Now, this is always relative, depending on what's going on. So you are not failing if your Mm. emotions take over, because sometimes they will. But you can also observe that you are filled with emotion at this time and that this will somehow pass, even when it's so catastrophic that you believe this is how it will be forever. For example, with, you know, tremendous grief or loss. Having this capacity just to be able to observe thoughts, uh, body, feeling and so on, definitely gives you a sense of stability within. And that's what we're really talking about here. 
So we need to remember also that one of the worst punishments that is ever given in our society is not just the death penalty, it's um, solitary confinement. Mm. And it's solitary confinement without music, without nature, without books, without journal, and it's imposed. There is no choice. And very often the people who are subjected to solitary confinement are also subjected to a whole range of other humiliations on a constant basis. They're constantly being told that their life is worthless. This is, this is insane. This is absolutely insane. And of course, it makes people insane. Um, so when we talk about solitude or, or having space inside your own mind or, or just the capacity to feel comfortable with yourself, we also have to recognize that this exists on a spectrum of experience and very much depends also on what you're able to take in, whether you have a whole bank of positive relationships, whether Donna is a spinster who nonetheless can pick up a phone and say to a friend, shall we go for a walk? And so on. So one's solitariness and the capacity for that to be solitude rather than loneliness also very much depends on the balance that you have with connection with other people, which in turn will not just inform, will, will shape the connection that you feel with your own self. Um, I, I think it's really, really important to know that we are all we are all experimenters here. You know, that's, that's what is so marvelous about life, that as long as we're living, we still have new opportunities to learn what will resource us, and as we are being resourced, what we can offer to others as a resource, and how also we can pr protest and should protest when those resources, inward or outward, are denied to others. Um, Donna, um, I, I wanted to take, up on, take you up on that point in particular, mm. where, you know, Stephanie was saying you can pick up the phone, you can, mm. you can commune with friends and so on. At some point, that is not enough. Is that, is that right in saying? Yeah. Um, you know, I've been living this life so long that I'm kind of used to it, but I, I remember when it was, um, there was a point where I understood that I um, am living a life that's around the edges of other people's lives. And, and so I can pick up a phone and ask friends and my friends, uh, you know, love me very much and would love to go for a walk with me, but can't because they have children or a partner or, or whatever it is, or work or, you know, um, whatever it is. And so I've come to a point or I came to a point that I kind of live in quite happily now uh, where um, if where I kind of, there's this, uh, how can I explain it? There's a kind of base note, if you like, uh, and I don't mean that in a negative way, but a base note that if my friends aren't calling me, then they are busy. And I, that used to give me great pain, um, you know, because I felt abandoned and lonely and all the rest of that. Whereas now I just think, well, that's how life is. Um, I can reach out. If I'm in a difficult situation, I will reach out and explain it and there's response to it. But it's, it's a very unique 
experience that I think is unique to being a spinster and, and probably a bachelor, and I say probably only because I haven't spoken to bachelors about that, I think a bachelor should write that book. Uh, I seriously do. Mm. Um, because I think that uh, at least spinsters and women's experience um, is much more written about now than it's ever been before. But it, ongoing bachelors' stories have just, they are invisible. And, uh, and I think that is an invisibility. Now, there are lots of other men's stories that get dominance, but, you know, that, that story is, is not there. So I think it's, yes, I've come to think of that as the kind of core existence. But if, if I could, I'm just thinking um, this, uh, the amount of solitude that I've had the luxury of in my life, I have to say now, I, it, there was a long time when I didn't think it was so luxurious, but um, it, it is a luxury, I think, for a woman in a Western country to have financial resources and an education and uh, the capacity to work um, and express herself. This is a great luxury and I do all that in solitude. But I think, uh, listening to you, Stephanie, I think I've got to a point where I can tell myself with the capital S, you know, I, I can tell the difference between me um, that core person to me that's being, uh, of me that's being affected by the world. And mm -hmm. I would say mm -hmm. that that's what you get when you live the spinster life. So there's a big tick for anyone thinking about that. I do have this profound sense of who I am in the world um, and, it's, and it's kind of beyond that. I, know, I understand the washing machine thing, but I think of the Herman Hess. Uh, Siddhartha moment where, where the guy says to um, Siddhartha, you know, it's sitting by the river and watching the river mm. flow. Um, it's that moment. And then comes this, which I'm, I'm just beginning to really understand as I'm listening to you speak. It's the person who writes the book in my life. It's the person who's, yeah. who's uh, examining my existence and wanting to write it down to share with you uh, and whoever comes after. It's my message in the bottle saying I was here. That's the I. It's not the social I. It's not yeah. the social person yeah. that you'll meet in the pub afterwards or, or whatever. It's this other person who, who is um, a universal. It's a sense of being connected to the universe. It's a sense of having words to explain that. And I feel it in the core of my physical being. That's a yeah. really yeah. important no, I, insight. I totally agree. I totally agree. <laughs> in terms of creativity, because a lot of people hear these sorts of things and think, oh, well, what they're talking about is a religion or what they're talking about yeah. is, you know, there has to be a purpose for this stuff. One of the things that disturbs me about the constant noise we have in our world, one thing I found when I was in a workplace trying to make decisions is how difficult it is to make strategic or really deep do deep work when you're constantly being interrupted by emails and, and things like that. But what you're talking about, Donna, is also access to a creative yes. source and soul. Yes. Now, you know, I, it really troubles me to think, well, how do people, how will we have creative work done? And creative work is really important. It's not a luxury in any, in any country. You know, how do we access that creative force if, we're constantly engaged with the white noise uh, that's now so easily available 24-7. 
Um, and I, I mean, I'd, I'd love to be proven wrong on this. I'd, well, at least I'd be interested. But I find that to be able to write, the less, you know, it, it, what you were saying earlier, Stephanie, the, the, it's really important to be discerning in the same way that you're discerning about what you eat and you know that there's the junk food, there's the good stuff, there's the, all that. Um, I, I say that's the way we should we should treat the world's communication, whether it's social media or news feeds or whatever, and be very mindful about how much of any of that we're taking in because it's too easy now to take it in. And the more you're that idea of just being able to access your mm. voice mm. is such a powerful thing because you've been able to clear some of that white noise away. Mm. I'm, uh, we decided beforehand we weren't going to do readings, but there are just three or four paragraphs I just wanted to share with you because I think it just kind of captures this perfectly about this idea of chosen solitude versus imposed mm. solitude, and it's about the dis- sort of silence descending Imposed aloneness. That yes, is not aloneness. solitude. Yes. Not no, solitude. That's that not, is yeah. not solitude. That is abandonment. Mm-hmm. We need to be very, very clear about that. Mm. Solitude is when I am alone with my own self. Mm. Loneliness is when I'm feeling the absence of someone, the absence mm. of purpose, the absence of a reason to be alive. It's very, very different. It's very, very different. So when they call it solitary confinement, it's not about solitude. Mm. Okay, so this is about silence descending. I don't mean the night silence when you create something while the world sleeps or the silence beneath a tree when you listen to leaves or a lizard in the twigs and watch the sky chasing clouds. Nor do I mean the silence between Christmas and New Year when you whittle away at your desert island book collection. Not that silence. Or the silence of driving alone, radio off, Bulldust and salt bush rushing past the windows, the leather road undulating to the horizon. And I don't mean that afternoon silence when the kids are on a sleepover, your partner interstate, and you read on the plush couch while the neat house stands still around you. No, I'm talking about the silence that greets you when the sound of the key in the latch is the first sound the house has known since you left. I'm talking about when your face has been still for 24 or maybe 48 hours because no one has spoken to you and you have barely spoken to yourself. I'm talking about how after so much silence, the sound of your voice seems foreign, too boisterous for company. It's the silence that comes when everyone is out. And after cleaning the house, you stand mop in hand, staring at the sulfur-crested cockatoo staring back at you through the window. And you ask yourself, What does all this mean? I'm talking about when, having spent hours blocking out the world in order to read or write or bake a cake, you pause, lift your head, cock your ear, look around and see the stillness. I think that if you needed a reason to buy one of these books, there you go. I think the writing there has just been uh, very, very, very convincing. Uh, Christine, I'm just watching the time. We just need to move on a little bit. Um, the changes that, you know, sort of having discovered that you can mm. kind of tap into this other thing that's happening, this quietness, you then sort of go on the retreat to California and you meet Michael Casey in Victoria mm. and uh, you then go walking in the, in the forest in uh, Washington State, which I think was quite, maybe you could tell us about that walk in the forest, mm. uh, what was his name, Hampton? Gordon Hampton. Yes, Gordon yeah. Hampton that prompted you to do that. What, were you, what was that walk about and what did you get out of it? Um, so well, I, at that point, I was still thinking that if I get to a place of minimum decibels, somehow there'll be some sort of mag- magical transformation. And um, what I realised in that journey is it's actually about 
just taking yourself there. It's not, right, I'm here now. Hit me with the sanity. Um, so I had heard about a place called um, One Square Inch of Silence. The way I'd heard about it was actually I heard Gordon Hempton, who is an acoustic ecologist, who's made a lot, he'd, you know, who's travelled the world recording different soundscapes for, for movies, for TVs, for games, anything that needs a sound background. Um, and he, I'd heard him being interviewed by Chris Tippett, who has a great podcast called On Being. If, if you haven't uh, listened to it, check it out. Um, and he talked about how there were only in his, in his period of doing this work, the places that he could go to record 15 minutes or more of, of, of what he called silence, meaning places where he could record 15 minutes where there was no intrusion of man-made noise. So you can have birdsong, you can have you know, water or rain, but no... In the United States, and he was writing in about 15 years ago, in the United States there were only 12 places left, um, and he called them the list of the last great quiet places or something like that. And one of them, because he became a campaigner for the importance of, of silence in nature, he, he went into the um, forest in, in Washington State and just decreed it, one square inch of silence, put a red pebble there, that's all he did. Um, didn't ask for permission. And um, this is one of those places that's, um, you know, that where you've got the really big, big, big trees, not the redwoods of California. It's, um, it's a bit further north, but hemlocks and Douglas firs, they're amazing trees. And the reason it's quiet, partly because it's a massive national park, but also because it rains almost constantly. So you don't get a lot of tourists and it's beautiful. So I decided I'd go there. Um, and... Um, yeah, it became sort of like a pilgrimage. It was, but what I realised now was it was, I had done sort of pilgrimages. I'd stayed in monasteries and things. This was a different type of thing. And in a way, it goes to what you were talking about, Donna, in that I was actually, for the first time since my children had been born, I was going to be on my own completely for, for, for more than a couple of days. I spent two weeks flying over to San Francisco, getting up to Washington State, and just hiking on my own about, I think it's about, I actually can't remember, but it's probably about a 10K round trip. But it's, it's, not, it's not difficult in the way that some bushwalking or hikes can be. But it's so quiet, partly because the, the Australian bush, you realise, is really freaking noisy. <laughs> um, but especially because of the snow and the, those big trees block out a lot of sun, so you don't get a lot of... Um, life at the, at, at, on the forest floor. Um, and I just walked with trees and I got to one square inch of silence. I'd seen about six people walking in. Um, and I basically sat down and I'll be honest, I was thinking I'd find instant, somehow find <laughs> something. And I just immediately got really frankly pissed off because <laughs> I'd walked in the rain, sat down and thought, well, I'm here now, what? You know, I'm just here and there's a couple of mosquitoes. Um, and I thought, well, I'm just going to drop into a sort of a meditation. Just, I know what to do here. And just, if this is what it is, this is what it is. And one of the things that just profoundly overcame me was this realisation that I was surrounded by these trees, these beings that had been there since before, a, you know, white man had set foot in Australia, some of those trees. And that's just, there was just this sense of presence 
and I'm not a bushwalking kind of gal normally, but um, I just had this realise a sudden profound piece of how time passes in a different way here than what it does in the city with the news cycle and all these things, and things can be okay. So one thing I would say is if you ever, if you feel like you can't possibly sit and meditate on a cushion or whatever, go out into nature without the earphones and just be present. Um, and that in itself brings you back into yourself in a way that's just astounding if you let it. It's waiting there. Could I say something about presence? Mm. I do a lot of work with people who are, are dying or people who are grieving. <clears throat> and this, of course, is a, a very acute stage of life. And I've learned that presence is the greatest conversation that you can have. The quality of presence and the quality of presence emerges from trust in yourself and trust in the integrity of the other and trust in the connection that you very naturally, without any force or effort whatsoever, have between you. So if, for example, I was teaching today in Japan and the interpreter didn't turn up, it would be possible for us still to have a beautiful time together in one another's presence, particularly if I could see you better than I can see you now, although I'm trying to see you now. So I think we also need to trust that beneath words, there is incredible communication. There's communication through our smile, there's communication through our gestures, there's communication through our openness, there's communication through our hearts. And just two weeks ago, when I was in the territory where I spend a lot of time now, I had the incredible privilege of meeting with Miriam Rose Ungermeyer Bauman, who's our Senior Australian of the Year. And I'm actually going to write this up for the Sydney Morning Herald because it's so beautiful. And so she teaches Dudri, which is really just being present where you are, recognizing that your life matters and that you are connected to this earth, which is actually what the mystical traditions have taught for thousands of years and our own First Nations have known for tens of thousands of years. And it is also a state of mind. It's a state of mind. And I, I want to say that to you with great encouragement that even a glimpse of it, you can have wherever you are. I would say, Stephanie, it's mar remarkable that, um, firstly, that you mentioned Miriam Rose because I, I discovered Miriam Rose's work when I was doing my book. But if there was one gift that this whole journey has given me that made it beyond worthwhile about the presence, about presence and teaching presence, it is being present and I write about it in the book um, towards the end, about my father dying. And, and I, when I was with him, my instinct was that initially was I have to do something because that's the way we're trained now is you have to do something. Control it, call a nurse, do something. And it was towards in the last sort of 24 to 48 hours... Um, being in that room with him and I just remembered those trees. It sounds odd. 
But I just realised that being there in the room of this man who had had such a prof- just such a profound um, impact in my life and such great life, all I had to do was hold space, be present. And I am just so thankful that I learned that. Um, we're rapidly running out of time, but there's the Gordon Hempton, there was a oh, line sorry. that kind of jumped out at me that <laughs> said, silence isn't the absence of sound, it is the presence of everything, yes. which I thought yes. was rather yes. lovely. Yes. But does that raise the, um, the question of how we listen? Now, as a result of having gone through that silence, did you see a change in yourself yeah. in the way you re- interact with others? One of the bits of advice Gordon gave me before I went in there, and he talks about this, is do not, don't listen for anything, whether it's birdsong or anything. Don't listen for anything. Because by listening for something, you're tuning other things out, you're editing. So just let things come to you. And in, in a way, that is what Stephanie's talking about, about you're holding space and it's, it teaches you, again, to just, um, I, when you're in, in with somebody you care about. Is or, when, or when you're with somebody that you don't, don't care, care about. about. Exactly. But just, you, I, I you describe it as... because they're another yeah. being. And I describe yeah. it as, I, I think, in the, uh, just sometimes I imagine my, that pool of, of space that was that one square inch of, inch of silence and letting them bring their things into it and just watching what's happening there without judging. Donna, you speak of your commitment, quote, to marry well or not at all. Uh, At one point, you are engaged to be married, but you call it off. Yes. So explain to us, A, what is is your idea of marrying well and what was the sort of compromise that was presented to you that you couldn't agree to? Ah, yes. Um, I I just... uh, like I said earlier, I was looking for a partner who um, would would join with me in the project of having a family. I, I had a fundamental knowledge that I couldn't bring up children by myself. Um, and, you know, all power to single mothers, but I, I just knew that that wasn't going to be um, possible for me. So I was looking for someone who would get up in the night and feed the baby or something. But... You know, I guess that's sort of like, it's a witty way of saying it, but I was looking for, for a mate, a partner who would um, hang around for the duration, who understood the project, who understood um, the, the, you know, the stress, uh, the duress of um, you know, buying a house and paying the mortgage and uh, doing the kids, and who would also engage with what what we were engaging with in particular at that time was, you know, feminism in the kitchen. I wanted a man who could um, have a a relationship with a woman and see her as equal. Um, And so the man that I fell in love with was a Japanese masseuse um, who had a fairly strong commitment to old-fashioned Japanese values. And so he felt that... um, 
you know, like three, I didn't write this in the book, by the way, this is just, you know, news for you. Um, <laughs> he felt that uh, three minutes a day from the father was good fathering. Yeah, okay, that was the problem. <laughs> and, um, and when he uh, did mention that, I had been suspicious, but I was in love, you know, he was beautiful. And, 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 I and still, massage. <laughs> massage. <laughs> he was very good at shiatsu and... Um, he actually trained himself in acupuncture on my body and I didn't like that. But, you know, that was, that was you know, that was the, the wonderful challenge of intimacy, really. Um, but I, I just, when I really, um, you know, had that, that moment, that the come to Jesus moment, as they say, when you think, oh, OK, so what we're thinking about here is the life-term contract. Um, yeah, he just didn't come. He just didn't, yeah. So that was very sad. Um, it was a sad breakup for both of us because we did love each other. Um, and then, um, I ha I'm sorry, I shouldn't smile. This is my macabre sense of humour. But like about five or six years later, I'd moved back to Perth. And, you know, if you, if you read my book, buy it and read it, um, you'll find out that I move in between Melbourne and Perth a lot. And I was back in Perth and I found out that he'd died of stomach cancer. So I would have been a widow with children. <laughs> like, smart. Yeah, good. So, yeah, yeah, that's not in the book. But, you know, there you go. <laughs> go with your instincts. Um, I'm just going to leave you with one final thought. Just walking home from the opening night address on Tuesday evening, I was listening to a podcast called The Happiness Lab, which is not a breed of dog, by the way. Um, <laughs> it's about finding happiness in your life. And they, the, the thing the, the, this Yale professor was saying was, if you want to find out what happier people do, tune into these emotions every day. Empathy, kindness, vulnerability, compassion, and gratitude. And I'd like to thank Christine, Stephanie, and Donna for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to and rate our channel wherever you listen to your podcasts.